Hi, Stuart. Welcome back. Thank you, Adam. Good to be back again. Yeah, and uh, apologies for you know um, for my Twitter announcement just mentioning uh, Stuart Marks. But of course, I also have you know to use the uh, Doctor Deprecator handle as well. Okay, yeah, not a problem. But uh, we'll make sure to we'll make sure to keep that covered in the future. This um, this reminds me, you know, like uh, Marvel superheroes. You know, like uh, there are also you no know, two 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 personalities, like Stuart Marks and Doctor Deprecator. It really depends in which you know in which mode you are operating, right? Removing yeah, right. that code or just you know uh, talking at um, podcast with me. Yeah, yeah, that's right. People say I've never seen Doctor Deprecator and Stuart Marks in the same room at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Um, so before we cover your uh, JDK uh, group, how to call it, endeavors, I would like to know what was your father's computer? Yeah, so so when we started the previous time, I talked about the Wang 2200, yeah. which was my first computer, which my father brought home from his job on weekends. So that's how I learned to program. But I think it's also an interesting bit of computer history to talk about how he got his start mm -hmm. in computer programming. And so in the, uh, in the 1950s, he worked as a shipping clerk for the Western Pacific Railroad. And so at that time, um, so Western Pacific was, uh, I don't actually don't know that much about it, but it was a big railroad operation. They moved a lot of freight around the country. And, uh, the, the way they kept track of things was on paper. And so if, if somebody wanted to ship something, they would submit an order and then there was a staff of people who would take all the orders and they would keep track of all, where all the train cars were and which trains were going in which direction at which time. And they had, uh, um, they had to match up the trains with the cargo that was to be put on them and try to give an estimate of when the cargo would arrive. And also, of course, they would want to optimize things. So you think about this a little bit. This is this is a classic optimization problem, and it's also something that uh, is easily uh, amenable to being uh, put onto a computer. But in the 1950s, businesses like railroads didn't have computers, but there was this company called IBM that was in the business of selling computers, and so they uh, they contacted uh, uh, Western Pacific and said. Hey, you can do a better job optimizing all of your route planning and whatnot if you had one of our computers. So Western Pacific uh, bought some computers from IBM, but computers need people to program them, and so there were there was no there was no um, there was no career of computer programmers. Time, you know, if you, I mean, the, the industry just didn't exist. This was you know extremely early in the uh, in in the industry. And so as part of, and so IBM realized this. So as part of their offering, instead of just selling the computer, they said, okay, we also have training programs so you can train your staff how to program and operate the computer. And so what they did was they, uh, they put a whole bunch of employees, uh, through a, an aptitude test and, uh, to see, to see how well suited they were to doing computer programming. And so at the time, my dad, I guess he was just pushing paper around uh, as a shipping clerk. He took this test. And somewhere in my archives, I have his test results from IBM, which were, you know, to Joseph R. Marks, dear Mr. Marks, 
you know, here's your score on the IBM computer programming aptitude test. And it had a bunch of numbers and stuff. And it says, this score places you in the 99th percentile of all people who have taken the test, which shows that you are eminently suited to become a computer programmer. And so that is how my father got his start in computing. So at that point, you know, they stopped, uh, uh, they stopped tracking all the, uh, the train cargo on, uh, uh, on paper and he moved into the computer programming shop. And so I believe his first computer was an IBM 1401, which is well, what was contemporary at the time. That was about 1960 or so. So that uh, he had a couple jobs programming the uh, 1401 before he moved to Wang Laboratories, uh, which, which is where I ended up uh, when I was talking about this in the previous podcast. But your father worked for the Wang Laboratories or used the computer? Well, <clears throat> so this was before he joined Wang. Ah, okay. So so, so this was at Western Pacific. Inside of Western Pacific, they gave this aptitude test to a bunch of. This is um, what I understood. Groups. But I, uh, later, what do you, I, oh. I just you know I just thought that your dad uh, used Wang computers, but he actually worked for Wang. So this was this was interesting. Mm -hmm. Oh yes, yes. I don't know if that was clear. Yeah. So he had yeah he had several jobs uh, after Western Pacific, and he did eventually end up working for Wang Laboratories. Okay. I took a look at the at the computer uh, Wikipedia. There was a picture, and uh, I, I read about that. So it's actually an interesting story, and the computer also looked interesting. And it had some um, what what was it? Uh, it was one of the only computers with built-in tape, I think, right? Because uh, there was something special. Yeah, so they compare it with HPF. Forgot about this. But uh, immediately after our talk, I just look at the Wang, and it was a picture, and Wikipedia describes it quite well. I actually put this to the show notes. The description of the Wang computer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Saw that. So um, interesting. So, but was your dad's computer the IBM, or he used the computer? So, was it possible in 1960s to to have a computer to to, to buy one? Or well, <clears throat> so uh, no, the IBM 1401 was. I guess it's it's hard to say. You might call it a mini computer, mm -hmm. uh, or I don't know. It was before this distinction of mini computers and mainframes. But basically, no, these, this is something that was far too expensive for an individual to own. Yeah, this is so what I IBM suspected. 14, mm -hmm. Yeah. An IBM 1401 um, uh, was something that fit in a machine room, and there was a cabinet for the mm -hmm. CPU. Mm -hmm. There was a cabinet for the memory. The, um, uh, the printer was as large as the washing machine. The card punch was the same size. The card reader was the same size. They also had a tape drive that was the size of a refrigerator. So, so this is something you need a dedicated machine room yeah. for. Yeah, and um, yeah, actually, really interesting story because uh, fascinating, right? So how how the companies moved from paper, which now is really hard to imagine, you know, without the database. The paper is a database, and um, right. yeah, and then to uh, to to computers. And uh, what was interests me very briefly, what was the transition between you know from Western. Pacific, you said to Wang. So how how your father got to Wang? So this also could be also interesting. So oh well, you know, I actually don't know that much. Um, so at Western Pacific, they were users of computers, and so I mean, he programmed the computer to to, to run applications that Western Pacific needed to do their route planning and whatnot. He had I I don't know. I mean, this was this was actually before I was born, so I don't I don't know. And sure. you know. He talked about it a little bit, but I just don't know the details of of when and why he switched jobs. Um, I think the reason he ended up with Wang Laboratories is that he really was interested in computer programming. Okay. And so 
Um, instead, he, he had a, a couple of previous, you know, the Western Pacific job and a couple of other jobs he had were programming applications for companies that used computers. Mm-hmm. And I think what was interesting was at Wang Laboratories, they produced the computers. So he was much closer to much closer to the development of them. Um, that's, you know, so and then and then Wang was was doing uh, they, they were doing a lot of interesting work. Mm-hmm. You know, even before the Wang 2200, they had some they had some de- desk programmable desktop calculators. Mm-hmm. And so he did a lot of uh, programming on those. And those were, I mean, those were interesting. And those, the, in fact, those were like the 2200. The earlier models were portable. I mean, you could, you know, it was several boxes and a couple cables, but you could, you know, you could disconnect them and wrap up the cables and carry a few boxes and put them in your car. And so mm-hmm. that was, that was, you know, they didn't call them personal computing at that point, but, but it really was. I mean, you could, you could pick it up, carry it somewhere, plug it in and, and do some work on it. Mm-hmm. The last time we uh, we stopped, you know, um, with your uh, t- uh, transition to the JDK Group at Oracle. So, uh, what did you do the first days, you know, at JDK Group? So, how such a transition looks like? Was it just, you know, signing papers, or what happened, you know? Well, you mean you mean between Sun and Sun and Oracle, or yeah. switching group? <laughs> Both, right? Well- I mean, both are interesting. So. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, the, the corporate acquisition stuff, uh, I mean, they were actually separate. Um, but I was working on job FX at the time. Uh, we talked about that a little bit the last time. Um, but when the, uh, when the acquisition went through, uh-huh. uh, yeah, there was a bunch of paperwork to sign and, and things like that. And, uh-huh. you know, switching, uh, switching email and, you know, just, just sort of corporate bureaucratic stuff. I had to switch email addresses, badges, uh, of, yeah, get a new badge, all that kind of stuff. Um, so, I mean, Oracle's done a lot of acquisitions. They they knew what to do. They, you know, when new employees come on board, you have to you have to do this and that and the other, and you have to take these online training classes, etc. Mm-hmm. One of the nice things about the Oracle acquisition, though, was that the Java, what we call the Java Platform Group. This is the organization that that mm-hmm. that runs Java, uh, delivers. Uh, the JDK, that group has, for the most part, remained intact since the acquisition. Mm-hmm. And obviously people, you know, there have been internal reorganizations, people come and go over time. I mean, it's been 12 years now. But uh, other other parts of Sun did not fare as well. I mean, you can talk about the, um, you know, other prominent projects like Solaris. There was Hudson and Jenkins. That fork was caused by uh, difficulties with, uh, with the Oracle acquisition couple other things mm-hmm. um, but anyway so the Java group I think is uh, it's it's hard to say I think it's uh you know it's been very stable yeah you know through the acquisition and and continuing to the present day mm-hmm. so so okay so what was your first how to call it task user story use case you had to do <laughs> at the JDK group so what was your no uh, okay. So what did I do? Actually, so this was, okay. So this was in, in the middle. Okay. So this was 2010. And so mm-hmm. this was during the development of JDK seven. So if you remember, um, the features in JDK seven were, remember, uh, project coin. Mm-hmm. It was, the, uh, uh, was, uh, Small. It was led by colleague Joe Darcy, uh, exactly. who, um, who was still around doing a bunch of stuff. Um, but anyway, yeah, so Project Coin was small change in the Java programming language. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so there are a bunch of coin related puns around that. But, 
but um but basically one of my initial tasks was to update the JDK code base to use the new features. Mm-hmm. And it seems it's kind of a small onboarding task, but but it actually served um I think it benefited the code base. It, mm-hmm. You know, it was one of the things there had not been any JDK releases for five years between six and seven. And so the programming language and the libraries had not changed. I mean, you know, if there was no major release, they really hadn't changed at all during that time. And so if you add new language features and new library APIs, then you really need to go back and make sure that your internal code base is is making use of them for a couple of reasons. One is to keep it modern. And, you know, the other is to, um, you know, it's it's sort of the eat your own dog food sort of thing or fly your own airplanes or however you want to put it. But if you're if if you don't put those features to use yourself, then you I should I should state it more positively. If you put those features to use yourself, you will learn new things about them. Mm-hmm. And I think that was one of the major points of this exercise. Right. Oh. So there were, there were you are, you are absolutely right. For you, it's obvious, but for me, not so, right? Because Java is implemented in Java. I mean, the all the libraries, you you also, yeah. yeah, you have to use, you know, the Java features to implement Java's libraries. So you're absolutely right. Yeah. I never thought about that. So um, uh, if, if you're implementing Java and, and uh, you use uh, more recent features, yeah, of course, then you learn about the features, right? So <laughs> interesting. Yeah. It's like almost like meta, right? Not, not, not almost, it is meta. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, so I think, you know, the, the language team generally does a very good job at flushing out a bunch of issues. But when you, uh, so, so it's not like, it's not like putting those features to use found bugs. Uh, there are sometimes little, you know, rough edges that need to be filed off, sort of, so to speak. Uh, what the, um, I think what's more interesting is when you put something, when you put a, when you put a language feature to use in real code, you learn a lot of things about the best way to use that feature, kind of style guide sort of issues. Mm-hmm. Hmm. You know, if you look at the code, if you look at this code, this is a good use of applying this feature here. But in this other case, maybe you shouldn't apply it here because it doesn't help. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's a lot of there's a lot of experience you can gain and uh, by doing that. Uh, regarding a yeah, so. um, complete different story regarding Style Guide, I had a chat with Nikolai Parlock. Mm-hmm. And um, there were back then, there were some coding conventions, you remember? There was some, yeah. Yeah. And they were somehow ported to Oracle, but I would say, I don't know whether they are well maintained. What Java is really lacking, like, you know, suggestion how to format code, right? And how to how to deal, you know, with, because uh, what I'm usually did i just you know read the uh sun coding conventions okay then this is my style and just use that but uh nowadays something like this is lacking right like a suggestion so more a convention how to format code you know yeah there was the original sun style guide and um there have been a couple attempts to update it over the years but they've stalled out for 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 one reason or another yeah so there is no unified java style guide and i think there there's this question of whether can you really have a style, a single style guide for a community as broad and diverse and as large as the Java, Java community? Or should there be a style guide that, for instance, applies only to OpenJDK code or something like that? I think that's one of the, um, that's one of the dynamics there. Um, so there's no, 
comprehensive style guide. Of course, other organizations have produced their own job style guides, mm -hmm. and, and that's fine. Um, so, so that is kind of a whole. What we have tried to do in a couple cases, um, in, in fact, personally, one of the things I did was to produce a style guide for use of the var feature, local variable type inference. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that. Uh, that's something we did publish, um, but we put a lot of thought into uh, exactly those issues, which is there's there's a bunch of you know there's a bunch of documentation and specification about exactly what var is and how how you you know how it how it makes its type inference. Mm -hmm. But what's missing when you add a new feature is sometimes when should you use it. Mm -hmm. And so um, I can if you haven't seen that, I can send a link to that. Yeah, that, sure. that was published. Would be nice. Uh, mm -hmm. Years ago, yeah, um, you know. So there are some interesting things there. Some people use var all the time. Some people hate it because oh, well, they want to see the type there. But I think there are some interesting examples in the style guide where where if you say, you know, I'm trying to think of uh, var list equals new array list. Mm -hmm. Well, you kind of don't need to see the list uh, the list type on the left hand side because it's right there on the right hand side. So yeah, uh, and uh, I actually use var a lot. Uh, actually everywhere. And uh, yeah. the reason being is at the beginning, uh, it was a little bit strange, but uh, you, if you hover, you know, with the mouse uh, above the um, variable, you will see the type. So I'm even using you know, right. Visual, Visual Studio code, which is very simplistic right now. And, uh, you know, with IntelliJ or NetBeans, you get even better support. So um, no issue. And what I really like is less code to write. So it looks really concise. So it's mm -hmm. actually, you know, actually, it is really yeah. nice. Yeah, one one thing about that is that I, I I guess I guess the standard I would apply is use var if a reader of the code without an IDE can figure out what the type is by looking at the right hand side, or if the if the reader of the code doesn't actually care what the type is. Mm -hmm. And so there's some examples of this in the in the style guide for for var. For instance, you know if you have you have a map and you have an entry set and you want to get uh, an iterator over the entry set in order to delete some items or something like that you have this you have this type that's a real mouthful like iterator of map dot entry of key comma value or something like that. it's like mm -hmm. you don't care you're looping over it right so yep. calling next and has next so you really don't the, the the reader is generally does not actually care what the actual type is mm -hmm. And so in that case, I think just use var because, you know, oh, you know, somebody looks at it and says, oh, this is obviously looping over the entries of a map. And but that's all they need to know. And they move on. But there are two use cases of caring, right? If I write a code for me, it's important or the code compiles so I know what's inside. I like the documentation. And if the yeah. code is readable, even if the type is not clear, I actually don't care, right? So I would say if you have a piece of code and uh, you are not sure what the type is, but you completely understand the code, so for me it's good enough because um, it doesn't have to be perfectly you know, clear which type is used as long as you can read or understand what's going on. Exactly, yeah. So um, now back to the, uh, to the style guide where you, where you started at the beginning or uh, you said, you know, eat your own uh, own dog food with JDK 1.7. Do you remember actually the first features of Project Coin? Um, yeah, so one of them was uh, Diamond. Um, so it's like, see, how did that go? So you used to have to say list of string list equals new array list of string. Mm -hmm. And so now, you know, with, with Diamond, I mean, it's really, you just, 
you, you just delete whatever's inside the mm-hmm. uh, the angle mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right so, mm-hmm. and that uh, it's it's kind of interesting with uh, it's interesting in retrospect because one of the criticisms of that at the time was why don't you put why don't you put type inference on the left hand side instead of on the right hand side there mm-hmm. was some back and forth about that but I think at the time the doing the diamond operator was was doable and it was a limited um, it was a limited scope change and it was a small change, but it but it also made a uh, nice difference in the code. It did it did shorten up uh, yep. a fair amount of code. Yeah. Now with var, it's like I find myself saying var list equals and then writing out the full type on the right hand side, but still sometimes I use the diamond operator. It just depends on what the context is. Mm-hmm. So it's a little odd. We we sometimes have type inference going on on the left side and sometimes on the right side, but whatever makes whatever whatever makes the code uh, look more natural. I think there are a bunch of other features so anyway so that was that was one that had one of the bigger impacts on code i think another one of the coin features was try with resources and that's probably the most significant of them Mm -hmm. yeah spend a lot of time on that certainly the um the specification is rather more intricate than you might think but it has to uh it has to deal with a bunch of cases about where 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 the resource gets closed and um you know, if there's a catch block and if there's a finally block and if there's both. So it's actually rather more complicated on the surface than you might think. Mm-hmm. Um, you can go, you can see that if you go to the, the Java language specification and, and look, look at the definition of the try with resources statement. Um, fundamentally, it's pretty simple. It is, it really is a, a feature that is nothing more than syntactic sugar. And you can see that in the specification. So if you, you know, the, the syntax, you know, the syntax, basically says, you know, writing try parenthesis, you know, resource declaration mm-hmm. is equivalent to, and then there's a larger, there's kind of a macro expansion mm-hmm. in the spec, although it's not actually a macro. This this happens at compile time. Um, but the the interesting thing about it, though, is, you know, and this is one of these things that came out after after several years of usage, which is when should a when should an IDE uh, issue uh, like a warning or an advisory that that some some variable should be wrapped within try with resources, mm-hmm. and it's not always clear because uh, I think I think the example <laughs> the example that 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 asked the question in the uh, most serious way was introduced in Java eight with streams, and so depending on how you open a stream, a stream might have a um, stream might have a resource in it, in which case you should uh, wrap that stream in try with resources. Or in most cases, like if you're streaming over a list, then there's no resource there, so there's no need to close it. Mm-hmm. It'll just get garbage collected. Um, and so that, um, I think it was, uh, maybe it was, an, it was probably IntelliJ. Uh, after, uh, JDK 7 came out, basically they said anything that was auto-closable needed to be wrapped in try with resources. But then stream came along and stream is auto-closable, but in most cases you don't actually have to close a stream, so. So there was some adjustment that needs to be made to those warning messages. I think scanner is, is another example of that, although that's less prominent. Mm-hmm. You can open a scanner on a file, which which will need to be closed, but you can open a scanner over a string and it'll parse out tokens from that string. And so it's like, that's just in memory. So you don't need to close that when it's done. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, right. This is uh, depends on the underlying yeah. source of data, right? Whether it is like in memory or something OS related. Um, so to well, be clear, the, what you did back yeah. then is so you refactored 
uh, already existing JDK code to use the new features, right? This is what you did. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so which part do you remember? Which part you refactored? So, where you introduced, you know, the try with resource in JDK? You know, I don't remember exactly which. Um, one of the things about the 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 JDK code is that it's you know it is itself a library. So there are a lot of things that open resources, like the I/O package. It opens a resource and then returns it, and so you can't use it with try with resources. Mm-hmm. So there are those cases. Um, but um, there are a bunch of other cases. Uh, I, I'm sure there were some in the JDK itself, but I remember going through a lot of test code, and it's very interesting. I think this is this is an ongoing theme. Um, this is probably not unique to the JDK. The test code is not as as robust as the production code, mm-hmm. and that contributes. You know, we have some issues with the quality of the test code. It's mm-hmm. various failures and things like that. There was a lot of test code where they said, oh, okay, well, you know, open something, use it, and then close it. Mm-hmm. At least with our tests, the um, uh, the the test, the JDK has its own test framework. And so the test framework, it, basically, you, you, you don't need to worry about catching exceptions because the test framework catches all exceptions and then reports, you know, reports an error in the test. And that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. On the other hand, um, one JVM will come up and then run a lot of tests. Mm-hmm. So we do need to be concerned about resource leaks. And so if there's, if there's an error with some resource, then it really should be closed. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of test code that was, that was not doing that. Mm-hmm. So I remember updating a lot of tests to use private resources. And, um, that's, and what's, what's the name of the internal testing framework back then? Remember this project uh, name? Yeah, actually we still use it. It, uh, it's called either JT reg or JT reg. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a Java test framework, which is where the JT test com- mm-hmm. JT comes from, and uh, that is primarily used to run the TCK, which mm-hmm. is the the conformance test suite. And uh, so for the JDK itself, repurposed and augmented the Java test framework in order to turn it into a regression test framework. Mm-hmm. And that's what the reg or the oh, reg regression part, okay. JT reg. Mm-hmm. And so that's all open source. There's a, uh, so JT, JT reg lives in the code tools project in open JDK mm-hmm. and the JDK regression test suite is in the JDK itself. Mm-hmm. So, uh, try with resources, the diamond operators. So I remember. So uh, interesting that you said that there were five years between JDK 1.6 and, uh, J- uh JDK 1.7. And uh, what's interesting back then, Java, was still getting more and more popular, you know. Just like you know, five year, five years, nothing happened, and we got more and more, you know, developers. I d- didn't even notice that there was you no know, five years, uh, you know, stag- no stagnation, but there was no no true innovation, right? Uh, well, you know, it's interesting. It depends on your point of view. I think I think to a certain extent there was stagnation. Um, I actually don't know about the number of developers and the size of the community. Um, Maybe it was still growing. Maybe it was, maybe, maybe that growth was driven by, you know, trends in, say, the enterprise space. Mm-hmm. Um, Java EE was still going on at that time. Yeah. This is, mm-hmm. but, um, one of the things that I think is a legacy of that gap. Oh, I should say the gap was also probably driven by economics mm-hmm. because in the, in the second half of the, of the 2000s, Sun was losing money and doing layoffs and teams were shrinking and so forth. Mm-hmm. And so, I think I uh, mentioned in the previous podcast that there was a lot of emphasis being placed on the the Java FX yeah. project mm-hmm. that I was working on, 
but the JDK group was actually sort of starved. Mm -hmm. They were um, <clears throat> in the JDK group between, say, 2005 and 2010. They were finding it very difficult to make progress. Mm -hmm. I think during that time, people in the industry started to realize that, and you know, they they weren't they weren't hearing very many things coming out of Sun, and so I think that gave rise to alternative JVM languages. Mm -hmm. I think uh, Scala mm -hmm. was created during that time. I think mm -hmm. Groovy was created during that time. Groovy is earlier. Maybe. So Groovy was even earlier. So Groovy was very early. There was even a, a JSR for Groovy, I remember. This was one of the first. Oh, yeah, <laughs> this was a crazy. But Groovy was yeah. 2003 or something like this. I remember this because... Uh, and yeah. Scala came later, you're right. Um, yeah, uh, the problem was lack of fu functional features like Java 8, right? Well, I think, I mean, certainly, I mean, certainly that was one thing, you know, the uh, functional style programming that Java 8 enabled. But I think just lack of, <laughs> lack of progress in general mm -hmm. uh, during that time. If, if people don't see that the, I mean, you know, if you don't continue to develop a language, then to a certain extent, that language is basically dead mm -hmm. and you, you, know, you, you get your community community drifting away from you. Mm -hmm. And I think that was happening to a certain extent during that time. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that gave rise to, um, you know, I mentioned a couple examples, but, but you know, maybe there are others besides Gala mm -hmm. that were started during that time. Or maybe, maybe they got more traction during that time because um, Java was not evolving to solve problems that people had. And so these alternative platforms were. Mm -hmm. What so I remember, they, funny fact with Scala. So uh, Java was uh, told to be that because uh, Scala had back then a native XML support. And everyone <laughs> wanted to have native XML support in Java. And I thought this is terrible. So I didn't want it to have you know, XML support at all. And and they say, okay, Scala will win because it understands uh, XML natively. I say, okay, this is strange because no, I didn't want it to do anything with SOAP and XML back then. But uh, yeah, yeah this, this was interesting. This is what I now know, um, uh, re remember that uh, the, the entire XML discussion with Scala. Do you remember the Scala discussion and, and XML, Scala, and Java? I, I don't remember the discussion, but I do remember that uh, at the language level, there was tight integration between um, maybe, maybe at the language level, at the syntax level, you yeah. could embed XML directly into, into Scala. Yeah, exactly. Uh, very strange. Uh, I think they've eventually I, I, they eventually got rid of that though, didn't they? Uh, I don't know. I, I think it was like kind of a builder pattern what they did, right? So how they parsed uh, or, or, or Groovy did this, but uh, Scala was so there was a huge discussion. This is what I remember. So I I, I tried to ignore that, but it was not always possible. And uh, <laughs> yeah, um, so um, I, I completely completely forgot about the coin name. Actually, this is interesting. So I remember this is uh, the predecessor of of Jap, I guess, right? Of the Japs. Uh, right. Yeah. This Jeps Jeps did not exist at the time. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what do you, so we, we discuss now, uh, try with resources, diamond operator, any other Jeps you, you are involved? Uh, well, well, and so, so this is, <laughs> okay. So I think, uh, I think if, if, if I recall correctly on our previous segment of the podcast, mm -hmm. uh, I said that, so I'm in the core libraries team. And so we have about 17 people working on this, and there's still a few areas that we need mm -hmm. that, that we're short-staffed on. Mm -hmm. But at the time, there were two people oh. covering all of core libraries. And so it was amazing. Basically, you know, there, 
it was, you know, there was so much technical debt and there were so many areas uncovered. And so that was a, um, so finally, uh, after the acquisition enough, uh, <clears throat> we, we managed to cut through the chaos and figure out how to, well, I should say we, the JDK group and the management figured out how to, to make the case to the new management that, okay, we can, we can bring some more people into the team. So I was brought in along with a couple other people. But one of the things that I, one of the other things that I was tasked with was fixing bugs in serialization and RMI. Oh, mm -hmm. and so, uh, and that was, that was timely. Well, it was not time. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was driven by need because in, remember, this is the early 2010s. And so mm -hmm. this is like 20, 2011 or so. I mean, this it doesn't line up exactly with Java 7. Um, but, um, there were a lot of security vulnerabilities being reported against Java mm -hmm. and the core libraries is very big and <laughs> you can easily imagine that you can get into trouble if you get security vulnerabilities reported and there's nobody on staff to, uh, to, to, to deal with them. Yeah. So there were some uncomfortable times there. So we actually did, um, we did hire more people onto core libraries in order to, to help out with that. And, and, and along with other things, uh, we also did staff up a vulnerability team to keeping on top of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so that, that was, that was also a good move. Um, so I work, uh, work very closely with them. Um, but yeah, so personally, I did, uh, fix a lot of, of vulnerabilities mm -hmm. in serialization and RMI. Mm -hmm. And so <laughs> you can, you can, uh, you can see that to this day. Uh, so I think, um, uh, occasionally I will tweet about that and I'll tweet some meme, uh, that has to do with serialization. Mm -hmm. You know, if you've seen those on Twitter. Um, but I've also even given conference talks on it. Um, cause Brian Getz is, he has a bunch of ideas for a better serialization, mm -hmm. I should say. Uh, and so in fact, he wrote a, he wrote a paper called Towards Better Serialization. And he and I gave a talk at DevOps a couple of years ago about, uh, you know, which is essentially our assessment of why why the existing serialization mechanism in Java so many problems? Yeah, but um, it already started, right? Because Java records are already uh, serialized yes. differently. So, um, and uh, and 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 this is already the first step, I would say, to towards better serialization, yeah. right? Yes. I yeah, exactly. It's a first step, but it still really is. Uh, um, <clears throat> it's a modification of the existing serialization framework mm -hmm. in Java. Mm -hmm. And I think eventually we want to have a completely different framework that that looks at the world in a different way. And so the record stuff is is an important step forward, but still it's it's it, it exists entirely within the existing framework. Mm -hmm. And can you just briefly explain what would be the major difference between now and future in serialization? Well, uh, so I think it's it's it's. So, so the main issue, and this is, this is mostly Brian Getz's work, but, uh, he and I have talked about it extensively. The main issue with the existing serialization mechanism is that it uses, and I'm, I'm putting air quotes in here. It uses magic mm -hmm. to, to get information out of an object and to put information into an object. Mm -hmm. And so, so we did discuss this in the, I'll make sure to, to post a link to the yeah. uh, DevOps talk. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because we do talk about this. But basically, if you want to serialize an object, what the serialization mechanism does is it uses reflection to go in and grab all the data from private fields. Mm -hmm. 
And to deserialize an object, it creates an empty object, which is something that you, you can't do in Java. Mm -hmm. The only way to create an object in the Java language is to call a constructor. Mm -hmm. The constructor is responsible for, for taking its arguments and initializing fields and stuff. And what serialization does is it says, no, we're going to use some, some, some special mechanism that doesn't exist in the language to create an object with all of its fields empty. And again, it's sort of air quotes. It's like mm -hmm. zeros, null, and, and false. And then it uses a reflection to stuff values into the fields. Mm -hmm. And so this is, I mean, so, so this is not unique to Java serialization, but I think other serialization mechanisms try to do this as well. And that's a serious problem because when you're looking at, if you, when you're looking at a program, if you write a class, then you can look at the text of your program source and try to reason about it. Mm -hmm. And you can say, ah, so I have this private field here and nobody else can get that. Oh, if it's serializable, that's wrong. Mm -hmm. um, or I have some invariance here, which I established in the constructor. But if you, if your object was created via deserialization, then those invariants can be broken. And then there's a bunch of special things you have to do, and you pretty much have to stand on your head to get this right. It's almost impossible to get this right to to make sure your object is totally safe if it is deserialized, if it has been created via deserialization. Mm -hmm. So it's very, very difficult. Back so, then, uh, excuse me, back then I even used you know, uh, to, to improve performance a bit externalizable. So it was a, uh, an, an interface, and it, it was a, quite a difference. So um, it was measurable, you know, the, the performance difference between serializable and externalizable. Oh, really? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so fundamentally, what, uh, what Brian wants to do, or what we want to do with the whole platform, is, is make serialization uh, fit well with the language instead of going around the language. And so if you want to create an object via deserialization, you should create an object just the way everything else creates an object by a constructor, mm -hmm. right? There shouldn't be any magic. And if you want to deserialize an object, then instead of you know, reflecting on the fields and grabbing all this private data out and then having some alternative syntax for saying, actually, I don't want you to get this field. I want something else. You know, there's the, if you look at the serialization APIs, there, there are layers of special cases in there. Mm -hmm. And so this is the area where uh, Project Amber is doing a lot of work these days, uh, which is <clears throat> pattern matching. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things they're working on is pattern matching and extracting. And closely related to that is the idea of a deconstructor. Destructuring, you mean? Well, there. I mean, yeah. So, so when you do pattern matching, you can do destructuring mm -hmm. and extraction of individual bits of data. But Closely related to that is if you want your object to be serializable, mm -hmm. how does the serialization framework get its data out of your object? Mm -hmm. So instead of having the framework reach in and grab things out by a reflection, then there would be kind of a special case of a pattern match that, that, that says, you know, extract everything. And so basically oh, destructure. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's the inverse of a constructor. And so, and so it's not a destructor like in, in, in C. It is a deconstructor. So if you think of, you know, suppose I have a person, which is, you know, uh, name and age, right? There's a string name and int and age, right? And so if I want to serialize that, then, oh, sorry, if I, I, have, a, I have a constructor that takes a string and an int, and then I get a person object out of that. And so a deconstructor is exactly the opposite, which is I want 
to take a person object and call the deconstructor on on that and it's going to it's going to return to me um a string and an int mm -hmm. and so you can sort of see that operating well it doesn't really operate i mean so records i think are a special case of that because the idea of records is that every field in a record or really every every component in a record is visible mm -hmm. and so there's there's um, there's no encapsulation in a record. Mm -hmm. But if you have an object that wants encapsulation, then as the programmer, you're going to need a way to write a deconstruction method mm -hmm. that says, return me a bunch of things. Mm -hmm. So that's very similar to pattern matching. With such uh, serialization, Java would even get, it looks for me to me almost like dependency injection, right? Because you have you have some state and if you call the constructor, this is what dependence dependency injection is doing. Um, you know, is is that right? I'm not I'm not that familiar with dependency injection. Yeah, well, dependency injection, what you're usually doing, uh, you are annotating fields, and uh, and uh, reflection is used, and all the fields are set. But you can also uh, annotate the constructor with at inject, and then the dependency injection will call the constructor and set and set the parameters from outside, and um, and uh, if deserialization uses the same mechanism, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting, because the but the dependency injection is used for stateless state, right? Because uh, all the what you are injecting usually is not. Um, this is mostly used, you know, in request res, uh, request response scenarios, where for every request the state is injected, and the state is usually data source or connection pool which is equal to all requests it's not like there is a distinction and serialization and deserialization is more like on entity level so you could you know write your persistence mechanism where you have uh, multiple clients customers developers whatever but uh, the mechanism is very similar this is what was was interesting the uh, and uh, even more interesting frameworks like quarkus for instance what they are doing they are looking at the bytecode, and they are not using reflection. They are generating the bytecode in advance, so at runtime there is no reflection at all. Everything yeah. is already pre-compiled, or uh, no, not, not pre-compiled, pre-generated. Um, so, but but this is actually interesting, Chris. As you said, this with the constructors. Okay, this is uh, will function as dependency injection. Of course, it it isn't dependency injection. Because uh, dependency, yeah, it could be used as dependency injection, actually. Well, yeah, I'm I'm not sure because I usually think of uh, when I think of dependency injection, I think of you have an object and and you know some data or some resource or something is being injected into the object, mm -hmm. and with a deconstructor, the information is is being produced by the object. No, no, deconstructor, yes, but uh, the constructor invocation uh, during deserialization. Oh, yes, yes, yes. This is identical. Um, yeah. To the yeah. Okay. So so yeah. Con construction during deserialization. Yes, it is. Uh, it is very similar to dependency injection uh, of the flavor where it calls a constructor. Yes. Yes. As opposed to the there's another flavor of dependency injection that people common commonly use, which is to poke things into private fields. Exactly. <laughs> which which I think we frown upon in the same way as we do with uh, with deserialization. Um, but I think the serialization, then that needs a completely new language construct, which we've referred to as a deconstructor. Mm -hmm. And 
And that, that presses on the language in a whole bunch of different ways. Um, that it hasn't been pressed before. And so one is, is a simple thing, which is it's like calling a method, except, you know, you know, it's like calling a method that takes one argument, which is, you know, the receiver, but it needs to return multiple values. Hmm. Mm -hmm. where, where, where do those go? Stream and of so, course, right? <laughs> stream of values. Yeah. Well, no, but they're different. Um, but they're of different types. Yeah, with pattern matching. This is why we need pattern matching, right? Well, and so I think pattern matching is, uh, and, that, and that, that's the same issue there, which is, if you do a pattern match, you might selectively match on some of the some of the fields of an object. But again, it's sort of like a multiple value return, which mm -hmm. Java doesn't have. And I, I'm not actually sure how they're going to express that, whether it's going to be, I mean, if you look at the JVM, if you look at the bytecode level, there really is a very strong notion of when something is called, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's a constructor or whether it's a, um, uh, whether it's an ordinary method or a static method or, and you can see this all in method handles as well. So through the method handles and bytecodes, there really is a very strong notion of passing in zero or more arguments those arguments have specific types mm -hmm. and getting zero or one return value mm -hmm. and so if you want to if you want to you know quote return multiple values how do you do that are you going to go through and rewrite all the byte codes and method handles and stuff to support that yeah. uh, or i don't think so or are you going to wrap it or are you going to box it all up into some kind of container mm -hmm. No, I'm not sure what the I'm not sure what the language guys are thinking about in, in these terms. Although I have some hints, but uh, I, I don't know where they're going to go with that. <laughs> um, back to your um, serialization and RMI tweets. Actually, one of the tweet I actually responded because you asked. I, I remember a few years ago, like uh, wh why RMI is useful, what you're doing with RMI, and my answer was. Uh, what we sometimes do is we are just using you know, like uh, inter-process communication because it's very easy with RMI. So you can just start a process which was instable back then. It was uh, with GNI. And if this GNI crashed, our main process still run. So it was uh, really uh, a very convenient way to encapsulate yeah. um, unstable code. And I actually liked RMI a lot. Um, and after Java 5, because you didn't have you know, to generate these tabs and skeletons. You could just use the reflection. So you said, uh, I think, naming.lookup, I think. And uh, you you pass an interface, and you get this tab back. You got this tab back. And back then, you had to use the RMIC compiler to generate these tabs and skeletons. Right. And and, and um, after the um, or after the RMIC compiler became optional, then it was actually great times. And... Um, but it was a short period in time, and then, you know, Corba became very popular. But it was uh, far more complex than RMI, of course. So I, yeah. I, never, I never understood, you know, why you have to, you know, to look up the lookup first to, in order to look up something else. In, in, in RMI, there was just one method, you know, naming the lookup, which was great. Yeah. Um, from the convenience yeah, so point of view, it was great. Of course, security is different, yeah. but from the from the right. ergonomics and and how it worked with uh, two lines of code, you get you got you know remote communication. Which... Yeah, I I think that's right. I mean, I, that was before I joined the JDK group, but um, the the innovation you're referring to in Java five was the use of dynamic proxies. Exactly, and so so that made that made it unnecessary to to have specific stub classes that were compiled by the RMI compiler. And yeah, and so I, I, you know, 
spent my time, you know, a fair amount of time writing RMI test programs and whatnot. And boy, the dynamic stubs really make things really make things easy. Mm-hmm. So all, you know, like you said, all you need is the interface, and you just get say, get me a stub for this from from here, and you can make calls on it. So mm-hmm. it's it's very convenient. Um, so I think yeah. So RMI is I would say mostly disused at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, in in the I mean, in the late 1990s when it was developed, I think there was this idea that people would build these vast distributed applications and you know send things across the internet and load classes across the internet and pretty much everybody has stopped doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there are a few I think there are a few cases of of where RMI is useful, um, which is a tightly coupled set of JVMs running on the same machine. Yep. And so. If they're tightly coupled, then you can be sure that they have the same class path. So, so one of the things, one of the things with distributed systems is that if you're talking to some server that, you know, maybe you don't control or you, you know, you, you don't know if it's been upgraded, it might have a different version of the, of the same class. So how do you detect that? And so there are all these terrible problems that the distributed yeah. systems companies had to deal with. And so on a tightly coupled system on the same machine, you can easily, you can much more easily make security guarantees and correctness guarantees if, if it's, uh, if it's a bunch of JVMs running, you know, running with the same class path, you know, especially where there's, you know, one JVM started the other. Very convenient to talk to, say, a child process using RMI because, you know, you just make a few serializable objects and then you can just make calls on it and it just happens in the sub process. But this is always back and forth. So what I remember, no, uh, the beginning was RMI or a beginning, so uh, a little bit later. So there was uh, criticism. Okay, is this very brittle? Because if we change something, the compiler doesn't compile. And uh, also, you know, we we, we always uh, um, so what most of the projects did, they set the serial serial version ID, you know, to 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 to, to be more stable. And then mm-hmm. they say, okay, uh, the you know tolerant reader. This is actually a bad stuff that everything is type safe. Everything has to be not type safe. And then JSON came, so I say, okay, this is great. We have Ruby and we have JavaScript. Uh, we write more unit tests, and and we don't need type safety. And recently, it was nice. This was like you know um, last year. Um, Someone, someone uh, on Twitter, and Twitter is actually, by the way, terrible right now because you know with the algorithmic timelines. Uh, sometimes I think uh, so- someone is talking to me, right? And this is just the timeline, and I'm responding, and this causes yeah, uh, this causes some some confusion. So I'm, I will have to use you no know, the Twitter client a little bit more, and in browser it is uh, s- strange. But uh, someone asked, you know, um, what are the use cases of TypeScript? And I said, okay, I use just JavaScript. I've used JavaScript because uh, I mean uh, it is enough, and with Visual Studio Code, I get you know the type suggestions, and, and it's fine. And and this was like you know. I got maybe 100 tweets. Am I crazy? JavaScript is not type safe. Uh, you have to understand you no know, TypeScript. Uh, this is type safe. For remote communication, you have to use types. It's like, yes, I know I'm a Java programmer. This was just, <laughs> if I do JavaScript, I just do JavaScript. And funny stuff is now in JavaScript world, they do exactly the same now. So they, they, they use you know, TypeScript instead of JavaScript. Some projects even generating data transfer objects for the clients and server to be compatible, but uh, they have to do it. They have to generate, otherwise it won't work. So it is exactly what we did 15 years ago in Java. Now we have this exactly the same in, in, in TypeScript. I'm just wa- waiting for the moment. They say, okay, now it's too brittle, no? because uh, everything is type safe. Maybe we should introduce JSON again. 
or Jason with Jason Schema. This is also a short period of time. So, okay, Jason with Jason Schema to have the types. And I would say this is always back and forth, and it's a really hard problem. And right now you say RMI is not that popular anymore, but gRPC, you know, Google, uh, gRPC is not Google, but gRPC is a remote uh, uh, protocol. But for me, it, it, it looks like Corba. I mean, this is this is from conceptual perspective. This is exactly the same idea as like Corba. You know, this IDL you generate these these tabs and skeletons, and it's just popular, and, and no one remembers Corba anymore, right? This is actually a funny history. It's all it's all the same thing being reinvented. Yeah, and 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 the truth is, in some projects, you know, or even in one project, there are some use cases for types of communication. There are some some use cases for not types of communication. And fact is, types of communication. If you if remote communication comes with a problem that the compiler won't compile, which is a great thing, and you know type safe communication means you have to test more, and you are backwards compatible, but you you have to take your responsibility and write more stable code, and 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 but what 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 uh, projects are searching for is like general solution for everything, and this this won't work. This is my suspicion. <laughs> As a Java user, not a Java implementer. So let's see, where where are we now? We we haven't gotten to Java eight yet, and we haven't gotten to dot deprecation yet. <laughs> no, but this was interesting story. I would say I have to reinvite you back, right? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I mean, we can go on a little longer if you're okay. But but uh... at least we should uh, actually complete the Coin project. So what what we should cover today, at least, is all the features of Coin project which are relevant. So if you remember this, this would be great because this was actually the beginning of JEPS, right? You know, I think in comparison to uh, in comparison to Diamond and Try with Resources, I think the other coin features are really not significant. Mm -hmm. And I, I'd have to I'd have to look them up. I mean, they're pretty obscure. I think one was so. was it one coin feature with the uh, number formatting with the underscores? Was it? Yeah, you can put underscores in in integers. In, in yeah, yeah. This was also constant. one feature. Yeah. That's what I remember. Mm -hmm. That was nice. And there were some things about exception handling. Exception yeah. handling that the calls. Well, let's see. So try with resources added the yeah. So the exception cause was was added earlier. Mm -hmm. One of the side effects. By the way, which broke serialization in many of my projects because the, <laughs> the, the this was this was interesting because uh, the exception be, uh, got the cause and they were no more serializable. So this was uh, or no more differently serializable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. What were there? There were some obscure obscure things. The um, oh right. So try with resources. A side effect of adding try with resources <clears throat> was in certain cases you. Try with resources would call close for you automatically, but what if close threw an exception? What would happen to that exception? So, uh, try with resources added the notion of suppressed exception, mm -hmm. and so so that's yet more exceptions chained off of the the top level exception, mm -hmm. and that's that's a kind of a separate separate slot in the exception data structure from the exception cause. So you can actually have a tree of you can have more than one suppressed exceptions. Which means that the the entire entire set of suppressed exceptions is actually a tree, mm -hmm. as opposed to a chain, which is the cause. Now I found right. the ultimate resource project coin on OpenJDK. So strings ah, okay. strings in switch. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So they they are significant, actually, right? Yeah. Uh, yes and no. I mean, it's one of those things that people asked for a lot um, because it was sort of obviously missing and. 
the the JDK doesn't use it that much. Occasionally, I'll use it in one of my little test programs or something. But I mean, it's nice to have. I mean, it, it's not gonna. I don't want to undersell it, but it's not a. It, it's not something that fundamentally, to me, it's not something that changed your code fundamentally, same way that try with resources did. In fact, all right. So here, here's another digression about try with resources. Um, in <laughs> you, you actually like the um, try or try with resources or hate it. So what's what's just now? I like. Okay, but one of the things one of the things that uh, that that connected for me was all right. So if we fast forward to to so so Java 18 is going to be released tomorrow as we record this, and Java 18 contains uh, JEP 421, which is deprecation for removal of finalization. Mm-hmm. And one of the th- in in working through that, I you know it's amazing. Or you study something very closely. My belief is that finalization was necessary in the early days of Java because uh, it was almost impossible to avoid resource leaks using mm-hmm. try-catch. Mm-hmm. And we actually have some examples in the JEP. And so we went back and, and, and wrote some JDK 1.0 era code. Um, you know, imagine, uh, I'm, I'm sort of imagining it here, which, which is probably... Might, might or might not be a good idea. But basically, suppose you have two files. Suppose you want to copy copy data from one stream to another, mm-hmm. you know, an input stream to an output stream. You have to open two resources and make sure that you handle exceptions from either of them. And if you get an exception from one, you need to make sure the other is closed. You know what it is? Two-phase commit. We need to, we need a distributed transaction. Yeah. It's exactly the same problem. If you would write to two databases, actually, in my enterprise world, at the same time, uh, sort of. It, it's in, in principle, it's actually easier than two phase commit because you don't need to roll back. Yeah, uh, but similar, but similar problem. It's it is a similar problem. But what you need, to, if you write out all the code to handle the cases properly, where you can get an exception from one thing. Uh, you know, from, from one or the other and making sure that they are closed in all cases, it's actually really complicated. Mm-hmm. And in fact, with a sufficiently with, with, um, and, and the evidence of that is try with resources seems like it's pretty simple. It just says, okay, do this try block, but make sure you close call close. You know, the system makes sure to call close for you. Well, that goes in a separate finally block that has to go outside the existing try block. Mm-hmm. But try with resources also has to keep track of of which resources have been successfully open because it doesn't want to call close on the ones that haven't been open. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at the 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 syntactic sugar expansion of try with resources, it turns out that you actually had to do that by hand in JDK 1.0. Yeah. If you were going to write code that correctly avoided resource leaks in the face of some exceptions. Yeah, and this was actually a pattern back then how to close uh, yeah. yeah, how to close a GDBC connection. This was the always huge discussion of what, how to deal with GDBC connections because if you clo- close the exception and exception uh, close the connection, an exception can happen and uh, That's right. and then you have uh, also no catch this, this exception and what do you do then with the connection? <laughs> so it was a, a interesting problem. There was a also a huge discussion what to do with it. So the JDBC connection was actually huge. So more discussion, almost more discussion than you know XML parser in Scala. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So, so anyway, so if you if you want to do something that is apparently as simple as as copying from one file to another and handling all the exceptions and handling the cases where you close both of them, even you know, sorry, if you you make sure to close both of them in the normal case, or if you get an exception on on one of them, and handle exceptions from calling close on either of them, mm-hmm. right? If you write all that out, it's it's actually like half a page of code. It's mm-hmm. ridiculous. Yeah. And in practice, nobody did that. Mm-hmm. And so in practice, people would write code, even if they use try, I mean, this is, remember, back in JDK 1.0, even if, even if they use try cache finally and attempted to do the right thing, there were probably cases that they still missed. Mm-hmm. So they would still end up with resource leaks in in obscure situations where, where you know got it they got an IO exception on something. Mm-hmm. And so I'm convinced that's the value of finalization mm-hmm. right there, which was all of the JDK classes that represented resources had finalizers. And so eventually one hopes the garbage collector would run and close any files that you you forgot to open because mm-hmm. you couldn't couldn't be bothered to write the sufficiently complicated uh, exception handling code. Mm-hmm. Try with resources actually solves that. And we, we, we didn't even think about finalization at the time. We were just thinking, gee, there's this problem with file handling and uh, try with resources solves it. Anyhow, I'm still, I was really happy that string in switch came. So you are not that excited, but for me, it was, uh, it made a difference. Okay. Before that, I had to deal with ints, as remember. And with as, as strings are, are nicer than ints. Then the binary integral literals underscores in numeric literals. So we talk about that multi-catch. Yeah, actually, multi-catch is pretty good. Yeah, and it yeah. came with coin. I, I thought it came came later, but it came with Project Coin, JDK 1.7. I thought it was JDK yeah. 1.8, but it was 1.7, so earlier. Um, diamond, we had it. Try with resources. Yeah. And VARARCs, simplified VARARCs method invocation. Oh, yeah, that's really obscure. Um, VARARCs was added in Java 5. Mm-hmm. Oh, so the problem with with varargs was let's see how did I mean it it uh, page all this in I frankly it's not that interesting but basically it has to do with if if you have a varargs which is a generic type varargs is fundamentally about arrays mm-hmm. and arrays and generics don't mix mm-hmm. and so if you if you had a a varargs of a generic type the compiler would generate a warning that was impossible to avoid. Mm-hmm. So basically, this was a tweak to some of the. Um, uh, basically, added an annotation. Ah, it annot- basically was safe varargs. Yeah. So basically, you could if you if you if you wrote if you wrote a method that accepted a var that had a uh, generic varargs mm-hmm. parameter, mm-hmm. then you could say, I do not modify this array. Therefore, heap pollution cannot occur. Therefore, compiler, please do not warn all my callers of, of potential heat pollution. Mm-hmm. And, and basically, that's when you write at safe vargs on a method. And okay. that, that's basically all it is. Okay. S- still see it, uh, see it in, in code bases. So it's, it's used. And by the way, we missed the, uh, the window because between February 27th, 2009 through March uh, 30th, 2009, um, there was, uh, you could form actually or file the uh the features and there were 70 proposals back then <laughs> so i just i'm just on the page from open jdk so we cover now huh? the uh so actually project con was significant so there were some features which are very fresh and i thought they came later but they came in 2009 
incredible. So St- Stuart so, or Mr. Deprecator, no, Stuart still, because Mr. Deprecator yeah. will come come later. <laughs> but um, we covered the entire project coin at least. So we moved a little bit right. in the Java. Now, we actually moved backwards because the last time we, we already were in the year 2010, and now we are back to 2009, but still, no. Yeah. Well, Java 7 was delivered in uh, 2011. So mm-hmm. we did okay. move forward a little bit. One year. This is perfect. But we did talk about some st- I mean, I think the, 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 the issues with serialization and RMI are ongoing. Mm-hmm. And I did spend a lot of time on those in the early part of the 2000s. So mm-hmm. we did cover that after. So we're not going strictly in chronological order. No problem. Um, uh, um, what's interests me in the new serialization, it, will it be possible to swap the data formats? Because if your constructor is called, I could choose, you know, to to read from whatever. I don't have, you yes. know. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, so okay. So, so, all right. So, yeah, returning returning to that. Yeah, that's, that's I mean, it's still mostly a set of ideas, but yeah. I think it's all, um, it's all in there in Brian Getz's paper. But, but one of the one of the other difficulties with Java serialization is that not only does it use this magic to get access to objects, but it also has its own it, its own built-in impossible to change data format. Mm-hmm. One of the ideas of a new serialization architecture is to decouple those. Mm-hmm. And so once you've figured out how to extract data from an object so that you can serialize it, or if you have data to deserialize an object, you can you, you figure out which which constructor to call, then the the format the data is written in is immaterial. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, so it should be possible to to plug this into um, into some other, you know, you know, some other module that gives you XML or JSON or YAML or whatever you want. This would be great, actually, so, because this would kill yeah. a lot of frameworks uh, and dependencies. So because with that, you could just, you know, serialize Java to JSON if Java class to JSON, if you like. This is actually great news. So I would say there are lots of features in Java which are really exciting. So um, the structuring with Java records, this would this 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 is going to be a big deal because uh, what you always need, you know, you have a huge Java object, and what you need is a subset and send it somewhere else. So if you have this already with Java record, then you could take a Java record and use the new Java serialization and serialize into JSON. So what it means mm-hmm. is the Java programming language becomes more powerful and we can skip a lot of dependencies, which makes the, the entire thing more secure and, and faster and, and smaller. Uh, yeah, one hopes. Um, but yeah, actually security is, well, I mean... <sighs> security, what I mean by security is, um, usually serialization involves a lot of external frameworks. Dependencies, yeah, and uh, and uh, it's not like the uh, what I, I mean. Security for me also means if I don't have you know external dependencies, I don't have to care about them because they can introduce uh, additional problems. So this is what I right. meant, right? Well, I think that's a good point, uh, and I certainly don't disagree with that. But I was actually thinking of something else, mm-hmm. which is also true about security, which is and and again, I, I'll you know we'll make sure to get the link to the talk that Brian and I gave about you mm-hmm. know, why we hate. Uh, it's it's maintainability of code, right? So if you look at code and review it, you you need to be able to reason about that code to make sure it's correct. And if if your reasoning is flawed, then that's a potential security hole because somebody can mm-hmm. make your object do something that you didn't intend. Mm-hmm. And then once they have an object that's malformed in some way, then they can use that to harm your system. Mm-hmm. One of the problems with the existing serialization mechanism is that there's magic going on 
And so if you read the code, you think, okay, you can make some assertions about it, but those assertions are false because there's some things going on behind your back. Mm-hmm. That's the fundamental problem. And so the way that this new, these new ideas about how we could do serialization improve security is that they all go through the programming language. All Java programming is represented in source code. So you should be able to look at the source code and say, aha, when this is deserialized, it goes through this constructor and I'm going to do these checks that are shared among all the constructors. I know the resulting object will satisfy all its invariants. Mm-hmm. Very powerful statement to be able to make. Yeah. And, and so I think, you know, just by looking at the source code. <laughs> but I still have to say, you know, yeah. now, now it is easy to criticize deserialization, but uh, it is like, you know, JDK 1.1, I think, was introduced not or already in 1.0. Yeah. 1.1, right? Uh, 1.1, yeah. Exactly. And this is actually big deal. That's that's one of the things about as much as we criticize serialization, it was important and necessary because yeah. you you do need to have a way to move data from an internal form to an external form and vice versa. Yeah, you absolutely need that for distributed systems to be able to write to write uh, records with high fidelity to a database or to file system or anything like that. Mm-hmm. There's no question that provided value, and it's essential. Yeah. Uh, because occasionally somebody comes along and says, why don't you just get rid of serialization? It's like, nope, nope. <laughs> Can't do it. It's it's too useful and it's too powerful, but it's also very dangerous. Exactly. And so we wanna we wanna preserve things that produce the power that, that preserve the power and the usefulness, but make it much less dangerous. But actually all power tools are dangerous, right? <laughs> <laughs> I I would say I, I think that's true. All yeah. Yeah, one of my computer science professors from university said, "All power tools can kill." Ah, and okay. It's a, <laughs> it's, a, it's a different way of saying the same thing, and I think that's true. But some some power tools are more dangerous than others, right? You know, yeah. you can have a table saw, but you can make a safe table saw by making sure that you know you have shielding in the right place and a hand grip. If you put your hands there, you you will not get cut. Yeah. So, so I think that's what we need: safeguards like that. Thank you. I would like really to reinvite you back because at least cover JDK 1.8, I would say. This would be this is, <laughs> for, yeah. the great great goal, you know, for our, for our next episode. So um, thank you. It was fun again. And especially I thought a lot to know about the um, how, how Western Pacific <laughs> and with the uh, computer from, from, from your dad and Project Coin, actually. This was a nice memories because I remembered exactly, you know, Java 1 and everything which was... Um, Project Coin related, and and I forgot the name Project Coin, and um, yeah, 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 it was a great piece of history. And uh, by okay. the way, and this is uh, also announced bloggers Joe Darcy and other some bloggers. So this is the community in Coin Dev. There is even a mailing list still announced on OpenJDK. Coin uh, Coin uh, right. Dev. Coin, yeah, Coin Dev has been shut down. Um, so so that the project is no longer active, but I think all the materials are there uh, for archival purposes. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, but yes, thank you for letting me share the story about my father. I think it's 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 interesting personal history for me, but it's also interesting, I think, um, computing industry history because this is this is how people became programmers in the 1950s. This mm-hmm. is what what they had to do, and so they you know they created essentially IBM had a hand in creating the profession of uh, computer programming. But uh, and so, what what what's really uh, surprised me how professional such a new industry were back then. 
that IBM had, you know, like assessment, uh, okay, uh, programmers, and they had the training materials and everything was in place. So it's actually amazing that they were, you know, because if there is a new industry, usually there is no such a thing. You know, if you, if you think right now yeah. about machine learning or whatever, or NFTs, right? <laughs> no one knows what it is. And, uh, yeah. and, and back then everything was organized and, 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 and well, interesting, right? Well, Yes and no, right? So what I have not seen is the aptitude test that they gave him. This is what I want to ask you. No, I would, I would love to see that. And so I think the open question in my mind is, is whether, whether it actually did correlate with, with aptitude to be a computer programmer. Okay. Um, as you know, my guess is that IBM didn't really know. They probably got a bunch of people into a room and said, you know, what does it take to be, become a computer programmer? Oh, uh, I don't know. Maybe you need, uh, maybe you need to be able to, uh, visualize, uh, geometric forms in your head or something like that. Okay. Okay. You know, that's what be... they, maybe that's what they did when they studied math in high school, right? So they wrote, wrote some exam questions like that on the exam. Okay. So, so I have no idea what was on the exam. I think that's a whole other topic. I think I, I should say that, you know, so I don't know if, if that testing, you know, if that testing strategy they used was actually successful. Mm -hmm. In my father's case, I think it was because he made a career change based on that and it, it served him well for the rest of his career. Mm -hmm. Um, so it did work out for my father, but you know, for, for other people, uh, it might have worked out less well. Yeah. So, but maybe a listener knows and they should ping you and, uh, we know with the test, this would be, uh, this would be interesting. So where people can find yeah. you on the internet, you have two, two, two Twitter handles we learned the last time, right? Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> One is Stuart Marks, and the other one comes later as Dr. Deprecator. That's Dr. Deprecator. Yes, that's right. Perfect. It was fun. I really enjoyed the conversation, and see you next time. Okay. Lots of history again, and, and still more to come. <laughs>